All right, it is time for another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast, ladies and gentlemen. But before we get to our guest, I have something exciting to tell you. If you love listening to the Crypto 101 podcast, um, you know, you're, you're getting two episodes uh, a week. You're hearing about crypto experts and learn about their companies and projects. Well, guess what? Now you have the opportunity to hear from 47 of the top crypto experts for a full jam-packed three days where they will discuss what they believe to be the best crypto opportunities for the year. And it's all happening during our Digital Currency Summit. Okay, it's a virtual event. It's hosted by Pizza Mind, a.k.a. Aaron Malone, and myself. And guess what? Your ticket to attend is totally free. Um, so to reserve your free ticket, just go to digitalcurrencysummit.com and click the link and go sign up. It's all done there. And, and you got to do it now because you don't want to miss out on this event. And we really can't wait to see you there. Again, it's digitalcurrencysummit.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Crypto 101 podcast, where I am joined, as always, by my notorious compadre, Mr. Aaron Pizza Mind Malone. Good sir. How goes it? Uh, it goes very confused, to be honest, Bryce. Uh, <laughs> the world is rapidly changing before our eyes. Crypto, as we all know, is a 24-7, 365 market. Uh, uncertainty at the time of this recording has probably never been higher mm. as far mm. as what is Bitcoin going to do in the short term. So, um, and uncertainty is really what's kind of kept things in this range right now. And it, it would just be nice to know the rules. Like, mm. what are the rules of engagement? What are the <laughs> rules going to be going forward into the future for all these different things? And they, they keep changing all the time. So, yeah, I just I wish really I understood what the rules were so I could plan a strategy. Yeah, no, that's that's really um, an astute observation. I think one of the kind of headwinds that, that crypto has been facing is just uncertainty around regulation, whether that's, you know, fiat on ramps and off ramps, uh, whether that's, you know, the tax code, the security code, all that kind of stuff. But um, I think one of the big uh, the big questions is, you know, where are we at in terms of regulation with Bitcoin? And what's just the path forward? So guess what we did? We decided to bring on an expert, uh, Bo Oni from CoinSource. He is the chief compliance officer. Um, so Bo, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. Just high level, you know, kind of, you know, background. How did you get into the crypto market and, and what were you doing before? So I am traditionally from uh, the banking world, uh, traditional finance. I worked at several uh, different banks and a credit union uh, in the AML uh, compliance, regulatory compliance department. So we brought on the right guy. Yeah, that's that's my traditional uh, background. And really, cryptocurrency looked like an interesting opportunity to me. I, I had the background in, in understanding the regulation from. Um, a, a traditional finance perspective, but I've also really just personally enjoyed being able to build teams and sort of think outside the box and and sort of tackle challenges that haven't been tackled before. And, you know, not only cryptocurrency, but specifically cash to cryptocurrency, which is what CoinSource does as a Bitcoin ATM company. Um, there was no blueprint. There was no 
sort of, you know, you just walk into an institution and you know exactly what to do. All of that had to be built from the ground up. And so that was a really exciting challenge for me to take on. So when you took on that challenge, what were some of the things in front of you that you had to figure out that had never really been mapped out? Well, I think that, you know, from my background, I was it, it was you have all of these rules as it relates to the Bank Secrecy Act, um, which is the overarching uh, kind of AML uh, legal framework in the United States. But it's very broad in terms of it's trying to cover a number of different regulated uh, business models and then how to fit in within that. So, you know, cash or cryptocurrency, the, the the most anonymous part of the transaction is actually the cash component, right? Where did the customer get the cash that they are entered in the kiosk to, to buy cryptocurrency? Um, the nice thing that I you know quickly discovered as I came on board here was this, you know, the blockchain forensics part where there's you know several different companies out there, um, as well as our own, you know, in-house abilities to be able to track uh, funds, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies along the blockchain to give us some visibility. Uh, onto that side. So I think the first thing is quickly trying to figure out how you're going to implement that and how you're going to be able to get some visibility into your customer's behavior without necessarily having to create larger hurdles for them to jump over, because this is a transactional-based business. Um, we're not custodying funds. It's not the same as a bank, where if your bank calls you and they have questions, you're probably going to answer, right? Because they can, you know, freeze you your, your money. They can, yeah, they can, they can, you know, take away your access. When you're talking about a transactional-based business model, where it's really your relationship is just as many times as the customer is willing to complete a transaction with you, you want to make it as easy as possible on them to be able to do that. But you still have this requirement to collect as much information and be able to satisfy that you know who they are. They know why you, you know why they're you are using. They are using your services and um, that you're able to properly uh, defend against uh, financial crime or fraud victimization. Yeah, fascinating. So when people hear the word regulation, and I don't want to offend you as a compliance lover and guy, but when people hear regulation, they typically have a negative connotation associated with that. And I think you know it's probably a bias, right? I mean, you know, regulation doesn't equal bad. It just equals... I don't know. What does it equal? What, you know, what, what is uh, regulation really? And, and how can it actually be beneficial? Yeah. You know, by the way, you're, you're not offending me. Uh, I think <laughs> that uh, the, the first thought beyond a negative connotation, I think it's a, maybe a boring connotation at first, whenever, uh, if I don't necessarily want to get into too much detail about what I do for a living, you know, small talk out on the street, I just say I'm in compliance and people sort of roll their eyes and walk off because that sounds really boring and, uh, and they don't necessarily want to go into the details of that. So I, I completely understand that, but it, you know, from a, and, and compliance and regulation takes many different forms depending on the industry. Um, but when it comes to financial institutions and financial services, it plays a very key role in basically being able to identify and prevent uh, any number of financial crimes. Um, most organized crime that, that's, that's well organized and, and truly causes systemic problems for society uh, is, first of all, all financially motivated. And then two, the real ringleaders behind that have been insulated from actually showing any wrongdoing like on a day-to-day -day basis or on the actual criminal level basis. But the money can always be traced back to them. I and mean, that's why 
anti-money laundering laws really exist um, because most of the major organized crime um, you know, groups that there have been, their, their downfall ultimately has been something when, as it comes to record keeping or, or anti-money laundering, taxation, those type of things. Um, they have money that is dirty and they need to be able to make it clean. And ultimately the, the people that have the most information about this to be able to readily share with law enforcement are the financial institutions themselves. So that's why it's important. And I, I think most people, you know, there's a, there's a balance there, right? Where most people want to be able to, in, in society, we don't want human trafficking to exist. Um, you know, we don't want uh, violence that's caused by uh, drug cartels and, 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 and things of that nature. Uh, I think most people don't want to, to think about their grandmother or their great grandmother being defrauded out of all of their of their cash and some sort of a, you know, cryptocurrency scam. So the the policies and procedures that are created are to to identify and prevent those type of things. And when they are seen to be able to provide that information to law enforcement, so that basically the criminals can be investigated and hopefully taken down and we make it a safer world for everybody to operate. The, the balance there is, you know, people are only willing to do so much, right? Now, everybody's not gonna decide, hey, let's all put cameras in our house that the government can monitor 24 seven. So you have to balance the privacy aspect and just the aspect of, you know, how much you're willing to share, but then also be able to have these rules and, and standards in place to be able to prevent uh, this criminal activity from happening. And so that's really the challenging is finding the proper balance to be able to achieve hopefully both of those things in some way or another. In your opinion, where would a good place be to draw that line given the existing cryptocurrency landscape today? Is there any token project that sticks out to you that says, yeah, this would be a good standard? Or in your own mind, what do you think a good place would be to make a compromise that works for everybody? Yeah, to me, at the at the, at, at the very baseline, the, the, the thing that we could all do a better job at and have a much more clear regulation around or standards around it doesn't even, you know, if, if the community could agree in general, let's all do this, you don't necessarily have to have government step in and require it, um, right? We can, we can self-regulate to, to some ability, but I think the main thing is just knowing who your customer is. And what I mean that by that is, requiring, you know, verified identity for each customer that is completing a transaction. Once again, I'll speak, you know, specifically to my industry, which is cash to crypto. Um, a customer's coming up to the kiosk and they are entering in cash. I don't know where they, they got that cash. I can ask them and they can tell me, but I'll either have to have documentation from them in order to actually prove that or I'm going to have to take them on their word. Then on the blockchain side, I can actually see where their cryptocurrency is going and through clustering methods, I might be able to see what their counterparts are. But if I notice anything that is suspicious, at the end of the day, I need to know who they are in terms of their true identity in order to be able to provide that to law enforcement. And I feel like, you know, if somebody's gonna go open up a bank account or if they're gonna complete any sort of, you know, really even small level financial transaction, uh, maybe even when it comes to money transmission or cashing a check, sending money, there are requirements to basically, you know, submit an ID and be able to, to prove who you are. So I don't think that's a step beyond what has always been required and what makes sense, but it's not something that is always being done or being done up to the level that it should in the cryptocurrency community. And that seems like a really low bar to be able to say, hey, let's all do this at a minimum so that, you know, we can report criminal activity when we see it. You know, the other thing about crypto is, you know, a lot of these projects 
were built, you know, not really to, you know, skirt the laws, but to serve people that just couldn't work within the existing framework. I mean, there's billions of people that are unbanked that don't have a verifiable ID, that don't have a bank account, that don't have documents to prove source of wealth and stuff like that. Is there somewhere in the compliance framework that can be created to still allow for them? Like that's a challenge that is still really gone uh, unsolved in this industry. There's some exchanges that are non-US based that will still allow anonymous accounts with low dollar amounts figuring, you know, if you're in somewhere in Asia or Africa or whatever, and you just don't have access to this stuff, or you're from a war torn area where all the records have been destroyed, you know, you can still transact small amounts of money, which to these people are probably, you know, a lot. Is there room and compliance for this going forward? Or do you think that's all going to get washed away at some point? Well, once again, it's, it's going to be a balance, right? I, I, I personally do believe there's room for that. And that should be part of every company's risk framework in terms of the higher the dollar amount, typically, not only on a transaction by transaction basis, but historically, how much volume has the customer done with you? That should play a factor in their risk profile. The higher the amounts, the, the, the higher the risk, perhaps. Um, so there is some availability to do that. But the other nice thing is that as people are, you know, as cell phone adoption increases and there are requirements to those companies are going to want some level of maybe not a government issued ID, but they're going to want to know, um, you know, who those people are to be able to market to them, what have you. There's more and more publicly verifiable information in terms of verifying people's identity available now than there ever has been. And so I think that's something that can continue to grow where maybe there's not the documentation, uh, the, the, you know, the actual documents, but there's non-documentary ways through technology integrations to be able to still positively verify people's identities. So I think there's options for that as well. Now I will say on the cash to crypto uh, currency industry, you know, 90% of the market is still here in the US and Canada. So you don't have these, these large corridors internationally as you would like in the exchange uh, space, which is a lot more global. You have this actual hardware component where you have to get them into um, you know, the place where the, where the kiosk is gonna actually resign and the customer interacts with it. So um, that creates hurdles in itself to be able to expand internationally. And I think that'll actually be a, a key part uh, of this industry going forward. Um, but the other thing that I would say that, that is the challenge of it all is most, the majority of criminal activity, illicit activity, especially as it relates to dark net market exposure, and especially as it relates to, to fraud, like stealing you know, credit card information and things like that off of dark net, dark net market sites, most of those are low dollar typologies. I mean, most of those are happening under $200, a lot of them are happening under $100. So once again, we've got a bit of a challenge there, right? Where I completely agree with you um, from an ideological standpoint. Yeah, buying $60 of Bitcoin is not that high risk considering uh, the volume of it or the, the dollar amount. But then when you consider that's probably the average transaction size for a dark net market transaction, um, that becomes a little more problematic. So again, I think there's room for it. It just needs to be you know, careful architecture on how to sort of satisfy both ends of that spectrum. Yeah, that's a ton of great insight. Now, kind of switching gears back to the, you know, the, the technology of Bitcoin ATMs, are, are these only for Bitcoin or can you also get other cryptocurrencies, potentially even 
privacy coins? Yeah, so the, the kiosks themselves, the majority of them, I'll say, I, I, I don't think I should speak for, for everybody because there's certainly nuances uh, across the industry. But the majority of these kiosks are these self-service universal kiosks that come with this large touch screen. And then there can be a number of hardware modifications to it. So, you know, like a camera at the machine to be able to, to monitor the activity around the machine, uh, a, a cash acceptor, a cash dispenser, a QR code reader. But before those modifications are made, this is basically a giant box with a touchscreen that operates very easily. And you can put any kind of software on there that you want to. It doesn't, these aren't necessarily specifically for cryptocurrency transactions. In fact, I've seen these type of kiosks actually out uh, in, in for government municipalities who want to allow people to like pay their water bill at self-service kiosks or find information that the government wants them to know. So they can be used for a variety of purposes. They just so happen that it makes it very easy and very compatible to do a number of financial services at them, which include cryptocurrency. So in terms of, you know, basically whatever software you can develop to put on these machines, the hardware is going to be able to work with it as long as the components are there. So no, it's not just Bitcoin. In fact, I would say most companies out there offer, you know, at least uh, uh, Ethereum, Litecoin, uh, maybe several others. There's some that offer, you know, 40 or 50 uh, different, different cryptocurrencies out there available for cash. Um, in, including privacy tokens. Now, the privacy token part, just as we talk through this, becomes a lot more difficult because of the cash component part, right? When you're talking about an exchange and you're getting, you're linking a bank account to there, which then uh, you could work with the bank to find out, you know, source of funds and things of that nature. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
nature, that becomes, you know, that becomes a way to mitigate the risk of maybe not being able to trace privacy coins adequately. In a cash to cryptocurrency transaction, that becomes a lot more difficult because once again, there's only one truly anonymous part of the transaction, and that is, uh, is the cash component. Um, so you already have that anonymous. If you combine that with maybe not having an ID on file and then allowing for a privacy coin transaction, I mean, you really are talking about uh, an anonymous transaction. And at some point you would have to ask, you know, why necessarily would the, would the customer want to, to complete that um, at an elevated rate where you could purchase Bitcoin for cash, but then a lot more cost effectively be able to take that Bitcoin and use it as the medium of exchange to actually be able to buy it online um, and then have your privacy token that way. So there, there's different nuances to that. I personally, for, for my risk appetite and, and the technology that we have available, which I think is really the key to being able to unlocking some of these challenges is to be able to do this with less customer interaction and being able to do it in the background based on some key pieces of information that the customer gives you. From my standpoint, it's it's a little bit too high risk at this point to to have a cash transaction for a privacy token. But I think anything's possible in the future as we can leverage technology solutions to be able to monitor things in the proper way. I'd like to dive into that statement a little bit more as, as far as it being too high risk, because I don't think you know myself and a lot of our listeners really understand what are the risks that an ATM provider takes on or an exchange or a custodial wallet? What is the risk to them to have an anonymous counterparty or dealing in privacy coins? So the risk, there's a couple of different ways to look at that. One, just from the standpoint of, of regulation, we're required here in the United States and in, and in most municipalities, there's some level of something analogous to the Bank Secrecy Act here in the US, which is basically our, our anti-money laundering law. And it states that you need to know your customer and you need to know their purpose of business. And you need to do all of these risk assessment type, you know, profiling on does it make sense for them to be using your services for the purpose that they say that they're using them. So there's actually a government requirement to do that. It's pretty broadly stated because it has to cover so many different type of business models. But at the end of the day, if a government regulator comes and audits me as a financial institution, and says, I want to know why these 10 customers are using your services and what level of risk do they present, I have to be able to define that in some way. So really the onus becomes on the financial institution to be able to, to sort of define that risk um, themselves. And what we're traditionally looking for is financial crime, you know, red flags, basically. Um, so it's people that are purposely using our machines for the purposes of uh, basically, you know, taking dirty money, taking dirty cash, uh, converting it into cryptocurrency, sending that off somewhere, and then being able to use an off-ramp to be able to hopefully, in their eyes, get a check back in the form from a cryptocurrency exchange, probably, that then they can tell their bank, which is ultimately where they're trying to get this money into, hey, I got this from a cryptocurrency investment. And you've been able to remove these levels of well, I actually got the, the cash originally from some sort of illicit activity. You know, mm -hmm. being able to disguise that, that flow of funds is typically what we're trying to guard against most. And that's, mm -hmm. that's our obligation from a regulatory standpoint. Now, beyond that, I'll just tell you that there's sort of regulation within the regulation. And what I mean by that is ultimately our top regulator is not the government. 
It's the actual banks that we do business with. So in the U.S. right now, you know, banks, traditional banks are considered to be the lowest risk as it comes to financial crime. And that's certainly debatable given the history of it and the fact that I would say that most money laundering is still happening through traditional banks right now. But that's yeah. the perception. And then when you add layers like cryptocurrency, cash-only businesses, and self-service kiosks that are in a sort of virtual environment without actually human-to-human -human interaction, all those from a banking's perspective are considered extra levels of risk. So when you look at it from that, for us to get a bank account, to be able to take this cryptocurrency cash that's inserted into our machines, deposit it into a bank, and then be able to purchase more inventory of cryptocurrency available to sell, we have all kinds of hoops that we have to jump through because of the risk that they think we pose, even if it's beyond the regulatory framework. And that's from a more of a business operation standpoint, but that's something that most customers are not ultimately going to, to understand is that's a very difficult part of the cryptocurrency industry is just to have your own banking services. You know, we're trying to provide an alternative to traditional banking to our customers, but ourselves as a business have our own challenges and just trying to get banking because of that perception. Do you have like an opinion on, on what the future of, of, you know, kind of crypto custody will be, you know, do you think that people will opt for non-custodial wallets and, you know, kind of going with, um, you know, companies like CoinSource and just transaction-based um, sort of relationships? Or do you think we're going to stick with the custodial model of, you know, keeping assets with a, a centralized party who holds your private keys for you? I think that, that, that the, the option is available for both. I mean, ultimately, I think it's going to depend on the customers themselves and what they're comfortable with. For a lot of novices that are getting into this industry and adoption's growing more and more all the time as there's more uh, you know, information in the media, more advertising. Um, I saw a number of Super Bowl ads uh, here just a, just a, a couple of weeks ago. So um, you're getting all of you're getting people to enter into the space that have never been there before, and it's already a bit of a stretch for some of them to understand this idea of a virtual currency that they can't actually hold that they can't actually touch. If you wanted to then take that a step further to a non-custodial wallet instead of traditional. Uh, trusting a traditional financial institution, which they would consider analogous to a bank to store that for them. It, it, I think it can be a little bit overwhelming um, for some people that are new to those ideas. However, I do think as education becomes available and the tools themselves uh, become more consumer friendly, especially to cryptocurrency novices, I don't see why more people don't move to a, to a self custody solution. Um, because ultimately I think that was, that was kind of the idea behind it all to begin with was to remove the, the custodial aspect of it. I mean, I know from a, from a coin source perspective, you know, um, right now you come up to a machine and, and you can send to any wallet destination you want, as long as it passes, you know, the blockchain forensics check to make sure that it's not going to like an illicit destination. But, um, you know, I, I think our recommendation to most customers would be to do, uh, non-custodial solutions just because of the purposes of what they're ultimately trying to achieve and being able to be in control of their cryptocurrency uh, themselves. And that's a, that's a great use case for using a cryptocurrency ATM as compared to an online exchange that is going to require uh, you know, their custodial solution, at least when you first make the purchase. Makes sense. What are some other things that really excite you about this growing space? Do you have your eye on any particular market sector? 
Well, I mean, when we talk about the cash for cryptocurrency industry, like we like we spoke about earlier, the majority of it's still in the U.S. and Canada, in the U.S. specifically, and it's growing like crazy here and continues to grow like crazy here. In fact, we're seeing more and more of the corporate retail chains uh, become more open to this idea of being able to have a cryptocurrency ATM in a large scale corporate retail space, gas station, grocery store, what have you, whereas traditionally we've sort of been relegated to the independent uh, mom and pop type, you know, similar um, gas station or convenience store. But ultimately, I think that the, the next great state for this is to move into emerging markets and, and more third world parties where they're cash heavy, uh, but cell phone adoption has really gone up. Um, and, and there's either a lack of trust or, or just a lack of availability for traditional financial services, and they're looking for an alternative means. I mean, when you talk about that and, and you talk about being able to have self-service kiosks, which are also usually very prevalent uh, in these type of nations where you could use your, your cash that you're paid in to be able to purchase a different store of wealth that you have more confidence in and then ultimately might perform a lot better than your uh, native uh, government currency. I mean, that's where you're really sort of taking that that next mile and and opening up, you know, financial, uh, uh, including everybody in the financial system at a, at a global scale. So I think that's the thing that, that most people in the cash to cryptocurrency uh, space are, are most excited about. Nice. Now, kind of to, uh, to round things out, I wanted to touch on the CCC, uh, the triple C, I don't know what you call it, uh, the Cryptocurrency Compliance Cooperative. Uh, what is this? What are the main goals of, of this co-op? So I could go, I could give you the mission statement. I could, I could give you all that. You can find that on our, on our website, uh, crypto3c.com. But the, uh, the idea is basically it's a working group of compliance professionals who are focused on uh, putting out work products and complete and creating compliance standards for the cash to crypto industry here in the U S um, that's how it was originally founded. And we've had a, a it's really been amazing uh, the amount of interest that we've had um, from compliance professionals who who want to be involved in it um, from all sorts of different different industries, well outside of just the cash to crypto space. Um, our biggest challenge might be actually keeping that scope that narrow because uh, just since we launched in August, there's already a ton of uh, inquiries about being able to make this more of an international organization, a ton about going beyond cash to crypto and making it just for the greater cryptocurrency industry as a whole. Um, personally, I think in this first year, just to get us off the ground and make sure we have a really strong foundation, I think we need to stay focused to our original scope. But ultimately, the group is it's a working group that's there to benefit its members. So it's ultimately going to be up to the membership itself as to how we want to uh, expand and what things we want to tackle uh, in the future. Um, but the idea is, is really, you know, to look at, to, to create, you know, educational studies, um, really strong data on use cases and typology, especially as it relates uh, to criminal, uh, possible criminal typologies uh, for the cash to crypto industry, and then coming up with standards or risk mitigants around those to be able to prevent that, being able to share that with in the industry, but also be able to work with regulators, hopefully, so that when regulation does come, and it seems to be increasing all the time, right, that it's responsible and that it's actually uh, tackling the challenge that it's trying to. So many times 
with regulation. The idea is to prevent financial crime or something, but laws are created that don't actually achieve that goal and just things makes things harder for businesses to operate. So we're hoping by being proactive and creating our own data sets uh, and being able to do this work proactively, we can get at the seat at the table so that when ultimately more regulation does have to come into place, we can make sure that it's done so in a responsible way so that innovation uh, does not become a, a, a byproduct of that that is sort of eliminated and it makes sense for the customers at the end of the day that are using the services. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, we've got a few people in uh, Congress and the Senate that are echoing that statement saying, yes, while we all love the US dollar and you know we all want to talk our own book, we will lose the innovation and the number one spot in the world if we don't adopt this and allow it to flourish here in the U.S. So um, aside from the U.S. government, you know, what is one company or entity that you think is going to have the biggest impact in the crypto space in 2022? Well, the, the government part is interesting because beyond just the regulating part, you know, so many countries are looking at their own central bank digital currencies, right? And so what companies are going to be able to interact with those the best? What companies are going to benefit potentially from those government contracts or partnerships? Um, there's no doubt that that, that could play a, a, a huge part in, in the growth of this industry. And I think along those same lines, you know, there's several, obviously internationally and domestically, you know, companies that have been around for a really long time now. Um, relative to, to, to cryptocurrency existence. I mean, a lot of us are, are coming up on 10 years of operations. So it's not this bootstrapped entrepreneurial um, Wild West show that maybe it was uh, several years ago. And what we're going to see, I think, here in the very near future is we'll continue to see new companies crop up that are just cryptocurrency based. But I think we're going to see a lot of other companies that haven't yet gotten into crypto that are going to start looking for those avenues. Companies that are, you know, have been around for a lot longer, maybe uh, are a lot, you know, have a lot more funds available. And how are the existing companies that started out as cryptocurrency specific companies, how are they going to be able to integrate with these other big players coming into the space, uh, whether that's working with them, partnering with them, or ultimately competing with them? That's going to decide sort of the fate of of the of the companies that that sort of started innovating in this space to begin with. Awesome. And Bo, uh, final question of, of the show, just from a crypto veteran standpoint, um, what's one word of wisdom, one word of advice that you would impart onto a crypto one hundred and one listener who might have just maybe heard about crypto for the first time last month and is just starting to break into it? I. So the main thing, and, and it's what we, we tell customers all the time, um, and this is from a compliance point of view and a, and a risk point of view, uh, but, but the one troubling thing that we're continuing to see is the number of you know, scams and frauds out there involving cryptocurrency, which gives a bad name to the entire industry and, and being able, people being able to take advantage of and something that I think that the community is really working together to come and, and be able to prevent. But from the consumer side, know why you're investing in this, right? Have a plan for it. It's, if somebody was going to you know, change bank accounts or was going to buy some sort of traditional asset or stock or bond or whatever, they would have a reason for why they were doing that. They would have a reason for why they're making that switch. Even if it wasn't that sophisticated, they would have a reason why they're doing it. And they would have a plan for how they want to see that perform. I hear too many times out here of, 
somebody just sees a commercial or reads an article and then they decide to go out and buy cryptocurrency without really any understanding of what is the purpose they are trying to achieve. So just like with any other traditional uh, financial asset, understand what you're doing, buy in lower than maybe you ultimately will to try it out and, and understand maybe the pitfalls of it, but have a plan in place, just like you would for any other class of asset. Uh, don't be confused by the fact that this is virtual currency or that there's this blockchain technology or maybe all of these words that you don't quite understand. At the end of the day, this is an asset, it's, it's, it holds value and you need to have a clear understanding of why you're purchasing it, for what purposes you're going to do that and what's your long-term future financial plan with it. Absolutely. No, one, one of the things that that brings to mind is a mantra that, that Pizza Mind and I always say, and it's plan your trade and then trade your plan, right? You don't just go haphazard willy nilly. Right. Um, so that's a great moment to end on there, Bo. Thank you so much. And actually, uh, the, the first thing you said about warning against the frauds and the scams, I mean, guys, there, I, I hear it time and time again. Well, I, I clicked this link. It said, if I send them you know, one Bitcoin, they'll send me two Bitcoin. I'm like, oh my God, you guys gotta be out of your mind. So be diligent, be vigilant. Uh, don't click phishing links or links that seem suspicious. Uh, change your passwords often and just use common sense. But Bo, it, thank you so much for coming on the sounds, show. If it sounds too good to be true, more times than not, it's not. Be, be suspicious <laughs> of, of things that sound too good to be true. Uh, absolutely, Bryce, I appreciate it. Uh, Aaron, nice to meet you as well. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Cheers. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.